We're continuing our trek through Ephesians, and um, it is wondrous in our eyes. <laughs> I don't know how many of you are fans of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, books or movies. Raise your hand if you've seen or read either one of them. I am a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, um, and part of the reason I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien is because he uh, is one of the two men uh, who helped lead C.S. Lewis to the Lord. Uh, so there you go. Go Catholics. Um, in the films and the books, um, Aragorn is a ranger in the wilderness of Middle-earth. That's how we first see him. And then you find out as you go through the movie that he was actually born to rule the kingdom of men, of Gondor. But, but he hasn't taken up that responsibility. He's fled it. He's afraid. And the reason that Aragorn is afraid is uh, because his ancestor, this great king who fought the great evil Sauron in some ages past, had a massive tragic flaw, a weakness. And because of that weakness, Aragorn's ancestor had kept the ring of power for himself instead of destroying it in the fires of Mount Doom. And because of that mistake, Middle-earth was now being plunged into another huge conflict with Sauron. And Aragorn is afraid to take his rightful place as the king of the kingdom of men because he's afraid that that weakness is inside of him as well. He could make things worse for Middle-earth, not better, by becoming the rightful king of Gondor. And then there's a very pivotal and emotional scene uh, where Elrond, the elf lord, brings... Aragorn, a new sword that is fashioned from the shards of the sword of his ancestor. And as he uncloaks this sword and holds it in front of Elrond, he says to him, Put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. Put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. That's the theme of Ephesians. You are gods. God has changed you. He's created you to be His heir. Be who you were born again to be. That's the theme of Ephesians. In the first half, um, Paul talks about you are gods. God has changed you. It's about who you are in Christ, Paul says. The second half, Paul talks more about how life looks for you because you were born to be an heir to God's kingdom. 
He actually begins with his normal greetings and a great opening thanksgiving. And then he goes off in the opening chapter about how amazing God is. How God has showered us with grace, forgiven us, how He's bought us back to Himself with Jesus' blood. He says that we were chosen by the Father. We're redeemed by the Son. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been saved by grace into chapter 2. He talks about what we used to be in the past, but what we are right now in the present. And then He gives us a hint of what it's going to be like for us in the future. Who you were meant to be. And then he says Jews and Gentiles are all one, that this is a big, huge mystery that is being played out before spiritual forces beyond our ability to see. And then he's followed it with a bunch of ethical material. Basically, how do we live then with this kind of reality? How do you then live as a Christian? Walk no longer the way you used to walk, is what he says. You are light, is what he says. Live as the light. Live like who you were born again to be. So that's kind of a little brief overview of the book of Ephesians. Dave kind of did a brief overview of our sermon so far. And uh, I've titled uh, this sermon, Fill Him Up. Nice little Holy Spirit gas gauge. I made that myself. It's cheesy, right? Okay. All right. Nothing like Photoshop. Okay, let's read through once really quick, and then we'll go back and look at it closely. Ephesians 5.15. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Dave go over the same passage. He did a good job of taking us through line by line. Here's my opinion. We don't read the Bible slowly enough. So we have decided that we're going to go through every passage for the remainder of the book of Ephesians twice. Because... There's more to dig out of here. There really is. So let's go to the very, very first line. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Now the text literally in the Greek says, watch closely how you walk. That is what it says in the Greek. Watch closely how you walk. Now, obviously, Paul wasn't talking about walking down you know, the road. And so, in our translations, we have said this is what he meant, and this is what he meant. Anybody in the first century who read this would have understood this is what he was talking about. So, watch closely how you walk. It has the idea of being super careful. It suggests that, that, that every life has a distinct purpose 
or a direction. You weren't put here by accident. God has a plan for you. There is something He wants you to do every moment of every day if you want to come into His will. His great and glorious and wonderful and joyful will. There's something about your life that is so special, God had to create you to do it. And so we have to reconsider then, I think, how to use our time. I mean, most households in our society spend at least four to five hours a day watching TV. And I have to think that's not what the Lord had in mind. I'm not against watching TV. But I'm just saying, watch closely how you walk. Be careful how you live. Years ago, um, actually just after I came to Denver, People Magazine published an article, and it, it was called um, Dead Ahead. And it was about these guys. I think one was a mechanical guy, one was a musician. And they invented this clock that would keep track of how much time you had left to live. So what they did was is they took the averages of what was going on in the U.S. at that time, and it was like 75 years for men and 80 years for women. So you would program the thing you know, with who you were and then and how old you were by, you know, whatever, when your birth date was, and all of a sudden it would start ticking down the days until you were going to be dead. They got the idea... Actually, the musician guy got the idea from a story about the great composer Beethoven, who on his deathbed shook his fists at heaven and said, I need more time. So, I did the math for myself. I have less than 6,000 days to live if that clock is right and I live to age 75. No, actually, I think I did it till age 80. If I live to age 80, I've got 6,000 days, less than 6,000 days left to live. It doesn't sound like too many to me. It really doesn't. It, it scared me. I suggest you all do this. Honestly, it, it's sobering. You're going, really? Okay. Um, I need to be careful how I spend the remaining 6,000 days I have left, I think, don't I? at least according to the Scripture today. And then um, he says, uh, don't live as unwise, but as wise. Now, wisdom in the Bible is a very particular word, and it starts with this idea in Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not just knowledge. It is about applied knowledge. How you live your life. And what the Bible says is, is the very first step in attaining wisdom is knowing the reverence, the awe of the Lord. You get that in place first. And you're just starting on your trek to get wisdom. In ancient Hebrew, the word wisdom expresses a person's approach to life. Hakam. Wisdom to master life's challenges can only be found in your relationship with God. So, the Hebrew is very, very practical in this. 
The wise person, then, is the person who's sensitive to God and who willingly subjects himself or herself to God on a daily basis. In the New Testament, we see that Christ is God's wisdom. That if you want to know what God is like, you want to know what God expects, you want to know, you know the kinds of things that you're supposed to be about, then look at the life of Christ. He is the wisdom of God. Verse 16, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Okay, we all know we're living in evil times, right? All you got to do is just read the news. I mean, it's stupid how evil these days are. I was just watching a video before I came up here when I was in the office looking over my sermon. It was about an FBI agent who was dancing at some club, did a backflip, his gun fell out of his trousers, and then went off when it hit the floor, or when he grabbed it, and shot somebody in the club. I'm thinking, like, isn't the world bad enough when people are purposely hurting other people that that kind of accident has to happen, and you're going... I hate this world. I long for the next world. The word opportunity there is actually a Greek word called kairos. Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. It means the appointed time. It means an opportune moment. It means a due season. In other words, it's a portion of time, okay? It's a portion of time. A parsec is a portion of distance for all you Star Wars nerds out there. But kairos really, in Greek, is about a piece of time, a very important piece of time, an opportune moment or season where certain things can happen that may never happen again. It's different than the Greek word chronos, where we get the word chronological, which just means time. Kairos is a special time. So the Apostle Paul said, make the most of every one of these Kairos moments. Don't let them go by. They may never come your way again. <laughs> We've got websites now dedicated to try to recoup Kairos moments that have gone like who was the person, you know, at the bar, you were wearing this color, and you said this to me, and blah, blah, blah. And they're trying to make a connection with this person because they let the moment go by. I don't know if you guys are aware that Kathy Pence has two jobs. She works here at SCUM. Uh, and then uh, she also works for a, a man named Michael Cespedes. Um, Michael is a man with muscular dystrophy. Uh, he should have been dead by the time he was two years old. He had that kind of muscular dystrophy. But, but he didn't die. Um, and he's beaten the odds. He has successfully earned two college degrees, after which he went blind. He actually went blind on his wedding day. Wound up in the emergency room. The wedding day was called off. 
He went through a big spiritual struggle. God, how could you do this to me? He struggled through it. He came out on the other side, holding on to God for dear life, joyful in who God was and who He had made Him to be. He got married a year later to the same woman. They worked through it. He's had children. He's gotten another Bible degree on top of his college degrees. He currently is in a wheelchair. He can barely talk. He uses a little microphone and a speaker that's attached to the wheelchair so that you can hear him. But he still tells people about Jesus. When they're in the Medicare office, waiting to do that thing. On the street in front of his house when they're having a yard sale. Some people came by and they wanted to get a dresser. They were living in their car, but they wanted a dresser to put their stuff in. And he says, would you like a Bible with that dresser? The guy is now 46 years old. If anybody has taken advantage of every opportunity of the Kairos moments in his life, it's Michael Cespedes. I highly recommend you get to know him. He knows he's on borrowed time. But then, so are the rest of us. Let's go to verse 16. Wait a minute. Did I... Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Okay, I did that one, right? All right. Okay, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, foolishness is the opposite of wisdom in the Bible. It has a moral connotation to it. It's not just about being stupid. It's about making godly decisions in your day-to-day life. It's about not lying when lying would make your life a whole lot easier. It's about not sleeping with the person who is offering him or herself to you with no strings attached. It's about not letting your pride get in the way of relationships. It's about not being jealous or unforgiving. That's what being not foolish means. This text is more concerned about God's intent for the way we live every day and about what is pleasing to Him. Let me, let me give you this example. Before a tattoo is ever on someone's body, it is in his or her mind. Before a tattoo is ever on someone's body, it is in his or her mind. If you want to do God's will, the desire has got to be in your heart before you can see it in your life. If you want to do God's will, the desire has got to be in your heart before you will ever see it in your life. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what God's will is. Get God's will tattooed on your brain. 
He goes on, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let me show you something. Okay. Here's an empty glass. Actually, it's not empty. This glass is full of air. All right? Now, if I wanted to suck all the air out of this glass, well, the glass may not survive a perfect vacuum inside of it, would it? I mean, what's an easy way to get all the air out of this glass? Um, I think I know. There you go. I think we've done it. By pouring water from the pitcher into the glass, the air has gone totally out of the glass. That was for the people on the podcast, just so you know. I know that you saw it happen. So, how do I get unwanted stuff from filling up my life? I think Paul's point is, is that The Holy Spirit is the controlling influence that motivates and directs the lives of believers to do the right thing. While drunkenness is kind of more associated with a lack of control. And he's saying, don't get drunk. And he's talking to both rich people and poor people because in the day... The late night banquets of the rich were known to be places of great revelry and drunkenness, as well as the taverns of the poor. Now, what's odd, I think, is that um, he says be filled with the Spirit, and, 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 that, and that's kind of unexpected. I would have thought that instead of saying don't get drunk on wine, he would say stay sober. But instead, he says be filled with the Spirit. And I think the reason for that is because it's a pretty effective way. Remember the glass and the water. I'm going to ask Tina Ray to come up here right now and talk to you a bit about her experience with all of this. Tina, come on up. Yeah, just so you know, when we were studying the scripture in staff meeting, oh, I don't know how to work my phone. I just set an alarm for just now, and then it went off just now. (laughs) Oh, I did it again. I don't know how to use a timer. Someone, you know, give me a hand when it's been five minutes or something. Yeah, okay, you're in charge. Um, But so when we were studying this in staff meeting, um, and we were talking about the whole, like, do not get drunk thing, I'm basically up here because I was like, I'll throw myself under the bus so hopefully that other people will learn (laughs) um, from my experience. Um, So my, like, family history with alcohol is just, like, alcoholism, addictive behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So in a lot of ways, I was just set up to not use that well. Um, It was just kind of like a main activity. Like, you didn't have to do anything else, like, 
we would just drink. Um, and that was just something that I inherited as far as a family culture. Um, so before, like, I became a Christian, uh, the way that I used alcohol was, like, escapism, um, to maintain a reputation, like whether it was my family's reputation or my friend group reputation. Uh, There's also like a sense of camaraderie when you drink with people, Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing um, because you're doing something together. Um, That exists in other activities, but also with alcohol. Um, And yeah, and it was just also, apart from my family, it was an inherited culture of um, being a musician, being a part of rock and roll and going to shows. Um, Alcohol is just a main attraction of that, right? Like, it's just what you do while you engage those things. Um, so then Jesus interrupted my life. Have you guys ever seen the movie Girl Interrupted? Okay, maybe not so many people. I wrote down the phrase Jesus interrupted, and I thought of that movie. There's nothing, no other point except for that. I thought that was funny. Um, (laughs) so yeah, Jesus interrupted my life when I was about 20, uh, and I'd been, you know, using alcohol for years at that point, you know, since I was like 12 or something, um, obviously primarily abusing it, uh, you know, getting drunk, um, and it had become a a lifestyle. So when I became a Christian, I knew that the way that I used alcohol before was something that I wanted to leave behind. Like it was not something that made my soul feel great. Um, and so just becoming a Christian, I knew I was like, okay, this isn't going to really jive with the corner I just turned in my life. Um, and so I honestly really tried, like I avoided alcohol for a while there, like just the first few months of being a Christian. And, um, but eventually like I was in school, uh, for music and was playing in bands and whatever. And it's just like, it's hard to meet people and, and engage in that scene without being around alcohol. So eventually, um, I was just like, okay, I can handle this. Like I'm a Christian now. Um, I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to put myself in bad situations. So it's all, it's all going to be, it's all going to be good. Um, so my intent going in like to a party or something like that is, uh, my intent would be to, to love people, to, to hang out with them, to, uh, care for them. Uh, you know, whether it was in just my presence or it was with words. Uh, so, and I definitely wanted to still feel like a part of the group, what was going on, especially because I had encountered like Christians before who came to the party and you got the hottie, like looking down upon the people around you. And I never, ever wanted to trans like translate that or have people pick up on that, even though now that was something that that was the patch I wore. Um, so I felt like, Oh, okay. Like I'll drink a beer with them and we'll have this camaraderie. Uh, and it will be fine. And then they can still find out that I'm a Christian and that I can still like share that part of my life with them. Uh, but I used alcohol for so long in this really negative way. Um, and then like, you know, I, I had a real, really turbulent, uh, upbringing. So like when I became a Christian, it wasn't like all of a sudden all of the, you know, trauma or like whatever was undone. And also just the, the effects of abusing alcohol for so long. So I would go to these parties and I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to hang out with people. I'm going to share, um, you know, that God loves them and, and just be like a light and love and support these people. And then, you know, so like I'm like one drink deep and I'm feeling good about it. I'm feeling missional. And then I get to the second drink and then all of a sudden my brain just like spirals back to that place. Because um, mentally it's just like I still had all of this like guilt and shame and unresolved things from my past. Uh, and so it was like one drink in, it was fine. Two drinks in, I started to basically kind of what Mike is talking about, like be my old self. And I, I started to figure out that, um, that alcohol was just a place where I lost my identity in Christ, um, just in my, in my mind. Um, and so, you know, whether I just had like one drink and was, wasn't even like really crossing the like drunkenness line, I would still wake up and feel guilty. 
um, or depressed about it. And I, I also struggle with depression. So, A, that's just not a very logical thing to <laughs> consume a de depressant and expect that to help. Um, so, yeah, so it was just like this huge conflict because I didn't want to be a legalist about it. And I was engaging in these cultures that it was a staple. Um, but, yeah, I just could not execute in my flesh, <laughs> like, righteousness with it. I could not make that happen, um, no matter how hard I tried. And, you know, I probably think that people who, like, in college, I legitimately shared the gospel with people, like, drunk. <laughs> and I laugh about it now, but, like, it's kind of not funny. Um, and I know that... Yeah, I'm standing up here telling you guys these things, and it's it's a common occurrence around. And I'm just telling you these things so that maybe <laughs> uh, it's hopeful and that people can learn from kind of my mistakes. Um, because, yeah, I told people about Jesus. I had great intent. I just wasn't able to execute that because of the way that I'd used alcohol in my life. And, and like I said, I just kind of forgot who I was. I wasn't able to hold on to my new identity under the influence of alcohol. Um, so it's kind of like, I just picture it's like Satan, like plugging in a microphone and like turning on an amplifier um, when I would consume alcohol. And I also recognize it's not like that for everybody. Um, so I know plenty of people, that's not an issue for them. Like they don't spiral out in identity issues. Like if they have a beer, it is totally a good thing. But for me, because of the way that it, like the role that it played in my life, it like that was something that directly butted up against and caused a really big struggle um, with the new identity I had in Christ. Um, and so, yeah, so about a year ago, I mean, like I struggled with this for years um, as I developed my faith. About a year ago, I just decided to like draw a line in the sand. And like I said, at that point, it wasn't like I was intentionally abusing alcohol. And like most of the time it would be like I would just have a drink or whatever, but it would still mentally get me into that place. Um, so yeah, a year ago, I just decided like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and I had a lot of people support me in that decision. And honestly, it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, I'm mean, just like it, the, you know, it doesn't add to my like struggle with depression. Um, it, uh, it saves me a lot of money also. Uh, ginger ale is just way cheaper. <laughs> uh, well, I guess maybe PBR isn't. Anyways, um, so it saves me a lot of money, but like I'm also just not adding guilt and shame um, to those things. And as I like pushed that out of my life, it really actually created more space for God to work through those underlying issues, those things that were rooted in me that were identity issues that came from real places. Um, but when I put alcohol into my system, I, I couldn't hear God's voice anymore and that. I just heard Satan's. And so for me, that was a lot of the decision I had. And, and for me, it's not an identity issue for everyone. Um, it just kind of depends on, I don't know your experience with it, but for me, the alcohol thing became a turbulent place where I couldn't hold on to my identity anymore. So for me, it was, um, yeah, one of the best decisions I've ever made to just, in wisdom, cut that out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I hope that you don't hear okay, Christians, be a good Christian, don't drink alcohol. That's not what I'm saying. Um, it, it's more that it, when I deleted that from my life, it, it's helping me become the person that God created me to be. So, thanks. Thanks a lot, Tina. Thank you very much. I think um, that obviously the prohibition against drunkenness extends to the abuse of drugs. Maybe any excess. Um, people can be drunk with power. According to Beyonce, you can be drunk in love. Um, but, but I'm thinking that's okay, given that uh, she's married to Jay-Z. Plus, she gets a bit religious in the song, if you know the song. To quote her, she says, If you're scared, call that reverend, which I wholly endorse. 
Uh, and then she makes the sign of the cross, so, you know. Love, love Beyonce. What can I say? <laughs> now, now, just so you know, this is, <laughs> this is plural. Um, it's the whole church. You want the whole church to be filled with the Spirit, not just you individually. You want the whole church. He wants uh, all of us, uh, you know, together to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and it's kind of a hard command to understand because... It's really not an active verb. I mean, we're, we're the ones being acted upon. I mean, be filled. It's kind of passive. I mean, how do you be filled? How could, can you go out and be filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you do that? Well, I know how to get drunk, but I. <laughs> but but I don't. How do you be filled? So the Spirit's going to do this. What are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting around for the Spirit to fill us up? And I think what we're supposed to be doing is the stuff the Apostle has just got done talking about. Watch carefully how we live, how we walk. We should be making the most out of every Kairos moment, every opportunity seeing things in a spiritual light, not just as physical things, that, that we, we shouldn't make morally foolish decisions, but we should understand God's will for our daily lives, uh, you know, not getting drunk or high. and That's what we do while we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to fill us up, I think. And in some ways, it's kind of like uh, we don't know which came first. Is the Holy Spirit indwelling you, giving you the power to live and seeing every moment as an opportunity, not getting drunk? I, I think so. But I think it's also the other way around. I, I think we've got a human responsibility. It's one of those holy mysteries. Now, just uh, uh, just a point of clarification, because a lot of you, I think, have encountered um, people who will tell you that um, in order to be filled with the Spirit, you must have evidence of speaking in tongues. Um, that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians quite a bit more. This is about being filled up with the Spirit in order to be who you are, and to do what is consistent with who you are in Christ. He's saying that we need to be filled continually. That's the force of the, of the idea here, is to be filled on a continual basis. And you ask yourself, why do I have to be filled? And, and the answer, I think, is because we leak. You leak. The Holy Spirit... You, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be filled with the task, to be filled and able to do something, I mean, you got, there's a need to be continual replenishing. You're not a perfect vessel. We're all broken, right? Now, this is not the same, being filled with the Spirit here is not the same as being, quote-unquote, baptized in the Spirit. It's not the same as being indwelt. 
by the Holy Spirit. It's not the same as being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those are all different terms that the Bible uses to really say that you've become one of God's children. You've come into His family. Jesus has come into your life. That you've got the Holy Spirit now working in you. That's a once and for all thing. So you get baptized in the Spirit once. You get indwelt by the Spirit once. You get sealed by the Holy Spirit once. Thereafter, you become filled in order to do life. Now this is important because this idea of being filled with the Spirit is going to dominate the next many verses. There's going to be relationships that can't work well. Husband, wife, parent, children, master, slave. They're not going to work unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is like the beginning. I've done the diagramming in Greek at seminary. They made me do it. I wouldn't have done it on my own, but they made me do it. And this becomes the platform for the stuff that comes later. Especially, uh, you know, we already talked about that. Especially speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to your heart in the Lord. So, being filled with the Spirit could be the cause of that. Now, I just want you to know something. This is not about how you feel when you sing in church. Everybody wants the warm fuzzies when they sing in church. I was starting to get them here in the first set, you know, and that doesn't often happen to me. It's nice when it happens. But that's not what he's talking about. It's about the integrity with which you sing, not the feeling. These words aren't really just being sung as a matter of course because you're in a church, but because they're actually true, they're what you believe. In your life. And we're supposed to encourage each other. By singing to one another. With each other. And sometimes, you know, this happens in the most unlikely ways. I don't know guys, if you guys realize this, but, but, but a few years ago, we, we made a, a, a conscious effort not to let drunk people into church. Um, <laughs> people would go to the liquor store that was around the corner and they would you know, load up and then they'd come in here and then they'd get more and more drunk as they sat in the service. And so we decided, okay, you know, this is out of line. Like if we think someone's drunk, we're going to just say, you can't come in. You know, we'll bring us some food. You come next week. We're still your friends. But if you're drunk, you're not coming to church. Because all sorts of disrupting things would happen, folks. Let me, if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. But all sorts of disrupting things would happen when people are drunk in church. So I was uh, playing the Holy Spirit bouncer out there uh, this particular Sunday. And I saw a guy coming in, kind of scruffy. And he was like not exactly what I would call firm on his feet, but he didn't look too bad, you know, and you don't want to be a jerk, and so I just let him in. 
this fine older guy. He came and sat down in the back. And so I'm out there and they start the music. And pretty soon the first song ends. I hear shouting coming from the sanctuary. Somebody is shouting. I come in in the back. They started the second song and, and I can't see anybody shouting. I go, that's weird. Everybody seems fine. I walk back out to the porch. And then that song ends. All of a sudden, I hear shouting again coming from the sanctuary. Now, being the older guy and being the, you know, one out there, I thought, okay, i got to figure out what this is. I come in, and here's the guy that I had let in. He's sitting right back there, and he's shouting to, I don't know, somebody up in the front here or down there. He's going, turn around! Turn around! Turn around! Now, the guy directly in front of him was a staff guy. Actually, had turned all the way around was asking what he needed, but the dude was looking over his head just yelling, Turn around! And so I went over and I kind of just grabbed his arm. I said, Hey, let's... I don't know what's going on. Let's go talk about it out, you know, side. And so we went into the foyer and I was ticked at myself because I had let him in. And I shouldn't have. He was obviously drunk. I could smell it by this point. And, and so I said, I said, guy I knew, I said, Joe, I said, man, you can't do that. That's disrespectful. He goes, I wasn't being disrespectful. Like, yes, you were, man. You were shouting out in the middle of service. And then next thing I know, he's cussing me out up and down as we get out in the porch. He yells at me. I'm, you know. And then she just walks away down, down around to the 7-Eleven. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad that's over. And uh, about half an hour later, he comes back. I'm out on the porch. And he goes, well, Pastor, I'm sorry. I was being disrespectful. I go, Joe, listen, man, I'm sorry that I was so abrupt with you as well. I, I was really mad more at myself than I was at you. And I'm, I just want to ask your forgiveness for being... So tough on you. He goes, well, you know, surely, he goes, the band knows that song. I go, what? That song, Turn Around. You know, it's on K-Love all the time. I'm going, you were calling out a request of the worship band? Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's probably about repentance. Turn around. I'm going, I'm feeling like the biggest jerk in the world. At this point, go no, no, Joe. They probably don't know it. They do practice beforehand. They've got a, a set, and so let's you know, just don't call out requests anymore. Um, you know, let them do what they do. <laughs> it just felt like such a jerk, you know. And here he was, basically speaking <laughs> spiritual songs. You know, I'm going. Oh well. So the pastor doesn't always get it right. All right. Um, um, (laughs) So the issue is integrity with which we sing, not the feeling. And then verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a difficult verse, and here's why. Romans one twenty one. if you look at it, it views the failure to give thanks as one of the root causes of sin. Failure to glorify God as God is another one of them. But failure to give thanks is one of the root causes of people not knowing God. That is what Romans one twenty one says. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. I mean, what do you mean? Like, am I supposed to give thanks for the hard times? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Evidently, at some point. I mean, I don't know many people, me included, who can give thanks in the middle of the hard times. But, as I look back on them, usually those are the times that shine the brightest in my life. There was a medical missionary in India who had found a way to heal people from going blind. And he said that once he'd done the operation on the local people, they never said thank you. Because that wasn't a phrase in their local dialect. Instead, they spoke a word, and it meant, I will tell your name. I will tell your name. Wherever they went, they would tell the name of the physician who had cured them of their blindness. They had received something so wonderful that they eagerly proclaimed it to anybody that they met. Were they grateful? Absolutely they were grateful. When you and I give thanks in any circumstance, we are in one sense, we are telling God's name to people. I can't tell you how many people, when I've been in tough times, and they look at me and they go, I can't believe how calm you were. I can't believe you still believe in God after all that happened. I'm going, where else am I going to go? God has done amazing things for me. Why would I abandon Him when things don't look good? When we and I give thanks, we are telling God's name. We are declaring that we believe in God and that God actually works in our lives. And then the last verse, verse 21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, just so you know, this idea would have been just as offensive back in the first century as it is today. I mean, nobody likes to arrange themselves under someone else, which is what the word means. To arrange under. We're asked to submit ourselves to godly authority in the Scriptures. But here it says, just even each other. Jesus continually would say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Neither Jesus nor Paul were weak people. But they learned submission. Christians are called to live in mutual submission... And without mutual submission, we cannot fulfill our destiny. Here's the trick. Submission is always voluntary. It's always voluntary. If it's forced, it's not submission. You decide about the relative worth of someone else. And here's the weird thing. In submission, the greater responsibility belongs to the person who has the privilege. The greater responsibility belongs to the person who has the privilege. That means if it's rich and poor, the rich have greater responsibility to submit themselves to the poor if they're both Christians. That means if you're a pastor 
and you have authority over people, the greater responsibility is yours to submit yourself. A couple of years ago, I made a request of people in this church. I said, I know some of you have been going to the morning service, some of you have been going to the night service. We're going to start a new service at 5 o'clock. If I've been a good pastor to you ever, would you do me a favor and just give the new service a try for two months? Do you know how many people left the church before those two months even happened? A bunch. Were they submitting themselves to godly authority? No. Was I asking them to do something sinful? No. What's my response? Here's the deal. If they don't submit themselves to what I have to say, then it's my job to submit myself to what they have to say. I have to bless them in their departing. It's my job to speak well of them, to help them find a new church. It's my job to love them and be kind to them and to welcome them whenever I see them, no matter how much it hurt me. That is mutual submission. Theodoret of Cyrus said this, We must not be submissive to those who command us to act unlawfully, but to those who call us to live with piety, we must be subject to one another. We must be subject to one another. And this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is what it means to be who you are in Christ. It's not easy. But I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot easier with the filling of the Holy Spirit than trying to do it on your own. In fact, you can't do it on your own. And yet we have to try. At SCUM, uh, we take communion by ripping off some of the bread and dipping it in the cup. Jesus had this to say. For our, the Apostle Paul actually had this to say about Jesus instituting communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take communion today, let's just say a little prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit. Lord, please fill me up with your Holy Spirit that I might be who you created me to be and that I might do the things that you have for me to do.